Hello, and welcome to the Literate Pixel Podcast, a podcast where we unwisely are recording live. My name is Nick, and I am virtually with the man, the myth, the legend, my best friend, John. Hey, John, how are you doing, buddy? Nick, you're too kind. (laughs) I love you so much. As I stated before the stream, it originally said George Clooney, but that felt too mean. Oh, you know what, though? Yeah. If if George Clooney's the one who replaces me, then that's a win in my opinion. I, mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess if George Clooney is playing John in, in the movie that is the Literary Pixel podcast, that is a pretty big win. Uh, then would you be, who would you be, Chris O'Donnell then? And uh, to do like no, the, the Batman and Robin? I'm Steve Buscemi. <laughs> mm, which, you know, he is a... A hero. He's a legend, so that's a good thing. Yeah, which I learned that I had been mispronouncing that poor man's name my entire life when I went yeah, it's to... Buscemi. It's Buscemi. I thought it was Buscemi, but nope, it's Buscemi. I heard him say it a whole bunch, and I was like, oh, I've been wrong. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, but, John, <laughs> we've gotten, as always, uh, a little out of sorts here, <laughs> and I'm I'm seeing the little red light in the void that tells us that we need to get to our ad copy, buddy. (gasps) Hold on, Nick. What are we reviewing, though? No, ad copy first, then review. Okay, ad copy. (laughs) Who is is sponsoring us today? So this week's episode is brought to you by BodySafe's TMCR. The world we live in is increasingly treacherous, with dinosaurs and ancient Egyptians all coveting what you've got. BodySafe's has the technology to take your valuables and put them in a discrete package, namely your body cavity, or preferably the body cavity of someone you love, or at least can stand. Want to prevent your wedding ring from getting lost in the sink while washing dishes? Our aortal strongbox will lovingly protect it from thieves and garbage disposals alike. Want to keep your priceless family jewels safe from intruding treasure hunters? Our Family Jewels Package safely tucks away your treasures inside your body's family jewels. Want to keep your hard-earned cash off the books and out of the hands of those greedy politicians? Our Kidney Cash Box Package... Cash Box... Oh, boy. Oh, you can't go back uh, on this. No, I no can't. Tonight. I can't. I'm so sorry, Body Safes. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But your Kidney Cash Box Package will safely store our moolah in the place of your internal filtration system body safes we keep your valuables where they belong on your person thank you body safes and i want to issue a formal apology i i resign as of right friend. now uh so yep, john this is all you i've been told well, i'm not that- allowed to resign by the man with the gun behind me uh so i'm still here yeah. at least for another episode cheesy the cheesesteak is <laughs> looming over you at this moment watching you and saying no you are staying and you're doing this yeah so um body safe talk is body safe yes yeah yeah they are uh they are doing they are giving us money to talk about this book that was written by douglas coupland um in the late 90s called lara's book which is based on the tomb raider series um, and this is helping to finish up our month-long two-episode celebration of Lara's 25th <laughs> anniversary. It was quite the occasion. Everyone cared. Douglas hey, we Cooper. had another book. This is our third Laura Croft book. Yeah, but I think we read the first one and then went, oh, right, it's the 25th anniversary. It'd be cool if we, yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Douglas Coupland is a Canadian artist and author known for literary works like Generation X Tales uh, for an Accelerated Culture and Microsurfs. 
Um, he has many notable artworks, um, some of them found in museums as well as uh, public places. My favorite is the pixelated orca. Uh, John, I don't know if you have a preference. You hated that orca, though. Uh, Infinite Tires. Infinite I Tires was pretty sweet. I have to say. All of his art is only really good if you look at it from a very particular perspective. I don't know. Which I've grown to love him through Laura's book, but I like and respect him more. Yeah. Which but, is really funny. It is immensely which, but, funny. Which is funny because you have 180 and you're just like, I don't respect him. This is stupid. It's I'm not quite 180, but I, I yeah. just like that he's warmed on you. So uh, given that you were very cold, you were off. Well, this book in particular is a love letter. I don't want to accidentally end up fondling Laura here with my hands on the book. Oh, I can imagine uh, it, you dirty, this dirty This is man. a love letter to the Tomb Raider franchise. Uh, this came out in 1999 after the release of Tomb Raider 2. And it is a perspective on the cultural zeitgeist that was Laura Croft at that time. If any young people are listening or watching currently uh, may not know, but the 1990s and early 2000s, Laura Croft was everywhere. In every mainstream magazine, they even had uh, professional models who specifically with tour and do like talk shows as Laura Croft. She's even on the cover of Playboy and uh, absolutely uh, just embedded in cultural society in one of the largest ways. Yeah. I I mean, so Uh, obviously I was rather young when this happened. Like I was technically there for it, but not quite old enough for it to make any sense to me. I have vague memories of, the Tomb Raider movies, which I recently tried to watch one and found it just insanely unwatchable. Like, I hated it. As a kid, I remember really liking it, and that might just be because there was a pretty lady that gave me weird feelings, and then uh, (laughs) violence. Uh, I mean, I'm not... I was raised... I'm raised in a misogynistic culture, John. I, I, you know, I would have experienced those things, and it has taken many years... Of being an adult to try to fight that back. Uh, I see. So uh, there was but, that. But I watched bo- it and they had like a Greek temple underwater that was somehow perfectly watertight. And I was just in shock. <laughs> I didn't. It was weird. It was yeah. bad. I didn't like it. Well, uh, the book is a love letter to Laura Croft and to Mitter. Again, uh, cu- like highlighting the cultural zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. Also offering some insight and perspective from Douglas Coupland himself. Mm-hmm. And how he feels... Um, we react to pop culture phenomenons, how that uh, affects uh, our our cultural, you know, uh, universal subconscious, uh, and and how that pushes technology forward. Yeah. But also having uh, some biting commentary on obsession, mm-hmm. and as well as just a strange fixation and objectification of 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 Laura Croft in a thing. The way, only way that I can describe it is uh, it is very manic. Yeah. The book does have a big manic energy. I will say that it is composed very well. As I've gotten older, I've learned to appreciate modern art or at least some modern art. I'm still a bit of a, a Philistine in that regard, but 
I, I've come to like some modern art, and this is the sort of modern art that I like. A, it is art that I cannot have composed myself. It is not a banana taped to a wall that sold for hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars while there are you know, billions of human beings starving. I'm um, Not billions, well, but a billion. I, I would like to point out that you know the person who actually does the composition of this book is not Douglas Coupland himself. Mm-hmm. It is, let's see, uh, da, 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 da. Connie Nixon is the one who's responsible for the layout and visual aesthetic. Yeah, the graphic design, the graphic design of this book, and it is very striking. Uh, using you know color palette uh, and stuff like this, uh, highlighting the colors used in the page. I did find out that that is the case. That these little dots that you see in the book are um, actually uh, the palettes that are used in the like adjoining pages and things like this. They do some stuff to highlight that, which is really interesting. Yeah, it, it's it's very... The thing that it reminded me of was like the color correction palettes that you would have at the end of old photography. Yeah. And um, the book is separated into a variety of different segment segments um, where segment one is really... Um, it's a series of chapters that are from the perspective of Laura Croft, uh, the digital being Laura Croft, not the fictional character, mm-hmm. uh, trying to understand it, its place in, in the world's reaction to it. And then it goes into Douglas Coupland in uh, his commentary, his uh, from his own perspective of what Laura Croft means uh, to culture and society. Um, and then it gets into the the objectification and the obsession portions where it starts to go into her personal vitals and statistics mm-hmm. um, and the, the, the public's reaction to, um, to this and like all the, the fan creations of it and the, the art and fashion of Laura Croft and these sorts of things really emphasizing um, the, the style of that character and what it means to other people. Yeah. Uh, and then interspersed throughout it after that are walkthrough sections that I can only describe <laughs> as they're bipolar. They are one yeah. of the, uh, and I don't, I don't mean that as like a, like, uh, I, I don't use that term lightly, like to be like an offhand comment on mental illness. It, it is legitimate. Uh, if, Somebody with a mental illness could look at that and say, oh, that makes sense. The the walkthroughs are insane and they don't make any sense. And they're just there. It's events and actions all disjointed and in different places. It's a wild experience. We'll show some of that as we go into the spoiler zone. Um, And then the book goes on to talk about uh, the creation of it, where they interview, you know, core designs and Eidos Interactive. Um, and then go into more guides. But the big finale of this is a fan fiction written by Douglas Coupland that uh, mm. the, the piece de resistance, it's uh, unlike anything I've ever read in my entire life. It's a piece de resistance. It's also technically a comic. It says that it is an action comic, which I would argue that that is not really the case. Uh, to the... Uh, to the point about the walkthroughs, I, I will say that it might be better to say that in some ways it's inscrutable. Like it, it's just, yeah. it, it's inscrutable and quite literal. Like yeah. and it, it, 
it is a walkthrough that doesn't really help you because it tells you exactly what you need to do, but not uh, giving you tips on how to manage that. It's almost as if somebody had recorded the inputs on a controller yeah. and just transcribed those inputs. Yeah. It's like uh, if an AI tried to describe how yeah. you beat a game. How you beat a game. And it's, it's, it's not – it's – Absolutely wild. It is. Um, but but I so I came into this book reading, Nick, thinking that this was going to be terrible. Because for me, mm-hmm. a lot of modern art or any instance where I feel like that the artist is really, you know, um, patting themselves on the back and thinking so highly of themselves, very much immediately I'm like, I don't like this. You know, I don't like it for that. And I was coming in with that preconceived notion in my brain. And I was ready to hate on this. So do you have complicated th- feelings about our mutual pat, bat pack? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Back padding sessions immediately after the recording of the podcast. <laughs> I mean, I pat your back. You pat mine, Nick. Come on. Yeah, so that's true. It isn't, it isn't quite as masturbatory as one might think. It's what, it, yeah, what is it it's called? Dutch rudder. It's the Dutch rudder. Yeah. It's the Dutch rudder of back padding. Yes. <laughs> Um, I just hold my hand behind my back, and you physically place your hand on my hand and and push it up against my back. Yeah. <laughs> so you get the sensation of it, but you don't feel the guilt. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, um, but I ended up coming into this and very much enjoying his initial commentary. Now, I would note that the beginning of the opening of this book says, With Thoughts and Story by Douglas Coupland. I don't think he had a hand in the walkthroughs. I don't think he had a hand in discussing with the development studio. I don't think he did any of that. I, I think other people were involved. That's uh, who though is, <laughs> is the question I have because like, if I mean, it's, it's ADOS, like this is insane. Like it's, it's published by uh, Prima guides, um, which are an unofficial guidebook company um, still around to this day. I this believe. is a garbage guide though. <laughs> like, it is not primo in any meaning, like meaningful sense no. of the term. Prima, Nick. Come on, oh, prima. excuse me. I, I accidentally masculinized it. <laughs> there goes that misogyny I was pointing out earlier. There you go. Yeah, it's just it but will never leave me. I had an, more of an appreciation of this coming out of it. When I closed that book, I ended up enjoying it far like actually enjoying some of the things that he was trying to say in this book than um then I was coming in. Yeah. I was ready to really hate on this book. And I ended up coming out of it actually very much enjoying it a lot more than I thought I would. Yeah, what's interesting is that we have very based on our preliminary conversation <laughs> we have very different takes on it. And and part of it is understandable because A, you would have been more aware of this <laughs> this whole thing um yes it, it's also like it is art like this is not a novel and that isn't just yeah. that isn't to imply that books aren't open to interpretation because they definitely are yeah but this is l- a little less scrutable in that sense like it is harder to read because you do not have l- i mean you have text but the text is often not even the most important component of it or like the arrangement of the text, the size of the text and the font, those matter more than the literal words themselves, which is something that we'll delve yeah. into. Also, oh, yes. I, I'm coming at it from, 
I've had this little pet theory. Uh, well, a pet. Yeah, I guess it is a pet theory that I've been injecting into a lot of the analysis of these books over the course of the podcast that comes back full force here. I don't know if he's actually drawing from this tradition, but I, I, I think it is an interesting lens to look at what he's talking about. We'll get to that in the spoiler zone. But also, I, I've read a bit of Douglas Coupland's Microsurfs, which gave me, as I, I told you earlier, strong modern times vibes. Uh, so modern times is the Charlie Chaplin film where a, you know, a laborer in a factory uh, has some hard, he, he has a, he has a bad time. It, it's largely about how the industrialization of America is dehumanizing and how uh, increasingly industrialized labor is stripping humanity of its creativity and its verve, its energy to do things that aren't just making stuff for profit. And this is yeah. a big theme in Charlie Chaplin's career, not to claim that Charlie Chaplin was some saint. Uh, he certainly wasn't. But in, yeah. in his art, he often talks about, you know, issues of poverty, issues of um, marginalization, especially of, you know, white people, even though in certain aspects he was an ally of uh, other groups. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so Modern Times is this book about how industrialization strips human beings of their humanity, especially industrialized work, factory work, how it turns us into machines um, and separates us from what makes us human. Microsurfs. We're not machines. Yeah. We're men. <laughs> Microsurfs does something similar, um, except for it talks about the dehumanizing relationship that employees within a sort of service industry. I mean, they are producing something. They're producing software. It's literally about Microsoft employees. Uh, but yeah. what happens to a person when their sole goal, the the thing they spend almost all of their time on, is the uh, production of wealth for a company. Yeah. Uh, and ha that effect on people in their lives. So in, in that sense, it has very similar themes to modern times, but is translating it into a, you know, modern, a more modern era, our era. Yeah, the the digital era the di of software. Yeah. And and I, I think that some of those things are also here, um, but yeah. not, not about the relationship between people and their work and what their labor means and what labor does to people, but rather mm -hmm. what our relationship to our media can do to us and what does a healthy relationship to media look like versus something that is potentially a little more problematic. Um, yeah. And it's, it's kind of like the, the relationship between uh, the consumer and the media Yeah, instead of the worker creating that media to be consumed. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah. Uh, I, I think it is drawing on some very similar themes as Microsurfs and then from Microsurfs to modern times. I don't know if he was explicitly drawing that line, but I'm, I like to think yeah. because I get to be pretentious if that's Yay! true. Uh, but I've watched silent films, even though there's literally one point in the movie where one person talks. <laughs> oh. um, well, Nick, I want to ask you this question here. Mm -hmm. What... Uh, how would you rank this book? Would you recommend this for somebody to to look at and read and own? 
Uh, and what rating would you give this? In some weird ways, I would almost recommend this book as a coffee table book. Like, especially if you're w- into video games. It's an interesting I- thing. Like, it is a conversation piece. I think that this is one of the highest quality things we have read for the podcast. On a on a publication standpoint. On a publication standpoint on I mean, obviously the narrative is garbage because there really isn't yeah. one. And then when there is one, oh boy, is it crazy. Oh boy. But both from a production standpoint, like it is a beautifully yeah. made book. It is just gorgeous to look at, which is why we needed to do this live. Yeah. Uh, we needed very somebody so. to look at it. Because one, we very much enjoyed this absurd concept of this this artist who really does deal in some more um, ethereal concepts about technology and consumerism and industrialization, who is this very different and, and also just culture in general, like the, the cultural zeitgeist that we exist in. And uh, but what's really interesting uh, is, yeah, that 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 this person is tagged to make this. I would agree that this would make a good coffee table book because it's it's fascinating. Uh, but it's just there's so much to this. I, I would recommend people own this book yeah. to read this book. Uh, and even though it's not really a book. <laughs> I don't it, know what to categorize this as because like it's like a an coffee book. table book. It's like a coffee, but a table, coffee table book is is typically just images. Yeah. You know? Or with it's some not, text it's not the priority is images. Yeah. It's just the images themselves. Um and this has a commentary to it that is uh insightful but also biting and it's all over the place in one of the the strangest of ways. Yeah. Not a novel, it's 100% a book. Yeah. There it says Sakura, I agree wholeheartedly. So on a scale uh, of rogues hour to 10, I I'm going to give this guy a 9 and I'm really only giving it a whoa. 9. I'm only giving it a 9 cuz I want space to give something a 10. Like something that just knocks my socks off. But, like, I can't justify giving it a lower score than that. I gave... We're never going to get a 10, Nick. I, you know that this is going to be as high as it gets. It, possibly. But I, I, I think it's a 9. I, like, I enjoyed it. There was never a moment when I was... Except for maybe when I was looking at the uh, <laughs> the walkthroughs. There was never yeah. a moment where I was like, this sucks. This experience sucks. Where I every other oh, book, no. I've had that moment where I'm like, uh, this is like, even when it has shocked me or I was like, this is weird or goofy. It felt weird or goofy intentionally. There was an intentionality to the absurdity of the um, that narrative toward the end, that fan fiction. I don't I We're going to have a lot to talk about with that in the spoiler zone. Um I, I do not want to give it a nine. I was going to just give it a seven <laughs> because that is the uh, theme th- of our rating, by the way, John, I always go at yeah. least one or two higher than you. So that's fine. Uh, I found his, his, uh, his insights from the perspective of Laura and himself uh, to be interesting and actually very thought provoking in a very positive way. I thought those were actually incredibly interesting. And I feel like it just devolves dramatically after that point where either if he is responsible 
that he just didn't know what to do or he was annoyed at the the people who had to have very particular aspects in it mm-hmm. or if somebody else is responsible for it was just not competent enough um and his his work at the end is the cherry on top that really signifies some real something about his own perspective that is just i've never seen anything like it i've never read anything like it you've never read anybody thinks but you're better for it john if any person is worried that they couldn't cut it as an author (laughs) (laughs) i know what you're gonna read this (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's pretty read this I would I would say that his his short story that he writes for this at the end of this book is comparable to some of the worst fan fiction. Because uh, fan fiction can be fantastic and absolutely amazing and a legitimate form of writing. And some, t- you know, and eventually we would actually like to read some for the podcast. Yes. Oh man, do I have a lot of Shenmue erotic fan fiction for you to read, Nick? Mm-mm. Um, but so that's where I'm like Douglas Coupland has a lot of interesting ideas as an author. He has a lot of interesting things to say, but then if this is any indication of his ability to construct a narrative in like a fiction, it's bad. I will say that is not the case because Microsurfs is a fiction that's pretty good. Is it? It's pretty good. It's well written. Cause I read some of a later work that he did for this this like um for this like uh congregation of authors mm-hmm. and stuff like this, Canadian authors and stuff. And um it's a five part story mm-hmm. uh that takes place in a video game and it was like this. It was like this short story that they do, and it's bad. But, Nick, I think it's time. So I would give it a 7. You're going to give it a 9. Yeah. Uh, just because also the walkthroughs are, are terrible nonsense, and there's a lot of word salad that appears in this. I think the word just salad words. is part of the point. but that, I don't. That is, uh, that is one of the things that we argue about, which I we will get to in a moment. But I, I, I think is also like, I mean, that's up to interpretation. Is that like a part of the oeuvre? The uh, the oeuvre or is that a part of the oeuvre as a whole (laughs) or is it a part of um uh or or is it like as disjointed as you think i don't know i think that's up to interpretation well nick Mm -hmm. will you do something for me will you take my virtual hand yes all right ow it shocks we're going to go into the spoiler zone. Are you ready, it's Nick? Weirdly tingly. Let's turn the page, shall we? <laughs> Why is it so heavy? I don't understand. Spoiler. We're there, Nick. We're there. Okay, cool. Uh, I I went blind a little bit. It's not that the music was playing in Twitch, and I <laughs> I didn't know when it was going to end. <laughs> that's not what happened at all this is entirely yeah, no, real and we are not breaking the verisimilitude of the podcast of 
uh, of our narrative bits that we have. Oh, no, yeah. No. no, they're not narrative bits, John. They are real things that happen to us. These are the days of our lives. Don't, don't. You were absolutely currently imprisoned, imprisoned by Cheese of the Cheesesteak in his egg chamber. And I'm still mad at um, you, you dirty liar. I know. And I'm with two elves in the void. I understand completely. It all makes sense. Hello. Um, Hello. Hello. Welcome. John poops enough for two. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to start off by uh, talking about uh, the, the, the one part of the book I didn't read. So what I had to read everything, Nick. I read all of this from beginning I, to end, yeah. all the fine print and everything. Did you read the, the letter to, uh, from Jeeves? Uh yes, I even read the letter from Jeeves. I liked the in the letter really, from Jeeves. I thought that was weird. It was hard to read. It was very hard to read because cursive is so, difficult to read. In its acknowledgments, it states, and I quote, foremost among these, of course, is author Douglas Coupland, whose obvious love for Laura was an inspiration. The supporting good humor of the crews at Core and Eidos were essential. And it brings up the question of is this satire or is this sincere? Mm-hmm. Is this book a satire on consumerism? Is this book a, a a satire on blatant fanboyism? Or is this a sincere introspection on our obsession with digital culture and these sorts of things? This may be a nonsensical uh, sentence, but I'm yes. not confident that those things are necessarily mutually exclusive. Okay. I, I think there could be a sincerity in the satire. If that makes there sense. was a part of me coming into this, Nick, where I thought in the very beginning of this that it was uh, truly sincere that he really believes these things. And I do believe I do believe with you in here that it is a mixture of both, mm-hmm. that there is moments of satire. There are moments of real sincere introspection. Um, and then there are just n- neither of those things. Just uh, uh, a lot of a lot of I I. Make this akin to like the the first Laura Croft book we wrote, uh, read Amulet of Power. Uh, yes, there is there is a bit of like belligerent, uh, like tantrum. Yeah, but it, that he, doesn't he, manifest itself as apathy. Yeah, but he's throw, he's throwing a fit. Mm. I think there are instances where he is throwing a fit because people are trying to get involved in what he's trying to do, and he's being a bit of a a diva. We're going to get into Gotta it. love a good all diva, right. you know. So the beginning of this book is all from the perspective of Laura Croft. Yes. And it and it begins with some days I don't even feel like myself. Yeah. And this is actually one of my favorite parts of the book. This is where I really grasped onto uh, the idea of... This is where the object agency thing became... Uh, a bit of my obsession when it came to uh, this book. So just to reiterate uh, from our, I think, Mega Man podcast. Okay. Uh, Mega Man. Yeah. The Amulet, uh, not Amulet, the Worlds of Power the Worlds book. Worlds of Power book. Mega Man. Where two. I make some very convincing arguments about how it is about a war that happened, I think, a couple years after it was published. Um, yeah. You were also talking about the war, the, the things the events that led to the war, mm-hmm. which was 50 years prior. Yeah, but I, I had another point in there about the relationship between people and objects. So in a former life slash semi-current life, I, I was and am an archaeologist. And one of the, the theories 
uh, one of the sort of lenses that archaeologists often interpret uh, cultural items through is uh, something called object agency, which is, in, in its simplest form, this idea that objects, um, though not like literal agents in a you know in an actual sense, like a cup can't do something on its own, but objects have certain traits, uh, and those traits uh, inform how human beings interact with them. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, he, he talks about, in this first portion of the book, it is, as you mentioned, from Laura, Laura's perspective. And Laura talks about how she, she's having a bit of an existential crisis. She says, yeah. I feel kind of, what's the word, meshy. I feel like there's somebody out there controlling my motion. And John, if you could turn to page two so that folks can see, page I think, two. a beautifully composed page. Yes. Uh, Audio Eric in chat says, oh, wow, I think I love this from this image in particular. Yeah. So I feel like there's somebody out there controlling my motion. I feel like there's somebody out there who makes my decisions for me. You you change the page. She keeps talking uh, about are there people who are, you know, let's just imagine that there really is somebody out there making me jump and shoot and kill and run. Right. Uh, yeah. But then she comes to a very different conclusion than her brain was initially going in. Uh, she says, mm-hmm. well, maybe there are millions of people all working to control me. Maybe there are millions of people all working to make me do all these things that a girl just has to do. And well, if that were true, then just think they wouldn't be controlling me at all. And then we have like uh, bikini shot, bikini shot. I'd be controlling them and that feels like a very literal reference to that lens of thought so here's the thing nick i i interpret this and what what she's saying here in particular is is it's not about people there, there's a reason why people are playing the game mm-hmm. um it isn't that they are wanting to control a you know a beautiful woman uh, and trying to control somebody, even though that definitely right? has, uh, <laughs> I know there's a component it, of that, but it is feeling this compulsion to uh, see where the adventures of this character take you. It's it's people being attracted to that personality um, that has been created, and it, they were drawn to Tomb Raider. Not they're trying to control or a Croft. They're trying. In, in, instead, they're they're going for the ride that is presented to them, yeah. Uh, and how the effects of this character and the stories that they're trying to create and the puzzles and game design and that uh, that is craft meticulously crafting this cultural zeitgeist, yeah, is um, is affecting people, yeah. Because later on in this, uh, it talks about um, how she how she has affected other people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, because she, um, she says, and I quote, but then I thought, no, it wouldn't be sad at all. To, it, she waxes poetic about this person who's losing their memory and they're mm-hmm. reliving these moments over and over again. And she says that it wouldn't be sad because other people would look, uh, at me and try to put themselves in my shoes and they'd be trying to live my life for me. And it wouldn't be only my memory they were constructing inside their heads. No. 
they'd also be constructing my feelings, my sense of right and wrong, my sense of beauty, my reverence of things ancient, and my love of, of adventure. They would, in fact, be creating and multiplying my very essence, my soul, as it were, within themselves. And then I got to thinking that if enough people were doing this, then I would have effectively become as much a part of all of these people as though I donated them a heart or a kidney. And therefore, even if I were to die or somehow not even be a real person, I would always be real or more real than real, hyper real because of my essence. Uh, and it has expanded itself so hugely. And this would make me something strange indeed, something eternal. Yeah, so what's interesting and, is that I think you and I have very different takes on, and I, I, I think both of them are valid, but I, I, I do think that definitely a component of this, um, just because I, in this nail, I think it's hit a lot more later in the book, and I'm sort of mm -hmm. viewing the book holistically, because uh, I, I I think you broadly think it's a little more disjointed than I believe it is. Uh, please yeah. correct me if I am mischaracterizing your point of view. I come, Nick, from this from a very, uh, a very uh, passionate thing. Uh, for those that, have, of course, you know, watch the the channel and listen to, to me talk, I've always been a person who has said that there are ways that we can connect with um, software and virtual spaces, and how the human, uh, the human spirit can can find ways to attach themselves to these digital spaces and find emotional connection to them, even though they are in reality, uh, you know, simulations, they aren't, you know, they, they're, they're very linear, and, but somehow we're able to connect ourselves to the narratives and to the characters and to uh, the, the mechanics of a game and become more emotionally attached to them. Uh, so I very much relate to this yeah. particular aspect very strongly. Yeah, so I think uh, where we differ is that I think in some ways he's problematizing that. That not not that it's I not that he is saying it is strictly negative, that it is strictly bad, but he is yeah. asking us to consider what we give up when we obsess over a media entity like Lara yeah. Croft. Which is why I, I think we have in very big words uh, when we go back to the bikini shot on page eight, I'd be controlling them in, you know, white highlight. Or when we have um, – or when we talk about like uh, that, that uh, portion you just read where she says that mm -hmm. I will become a part of them. That I will take – I will be as if I were a vital organ uh, donated to them. no. No, no. What that, what that means is that those people have come out of this game experience uh, changed, that they have been affected by it, and that, that they've they've found uh, an experience that has uh, that has uh, become an indelible mark on their being. Yes. And you can see but that with every person, though, Nick, because look, we, we talk about childhood memories and these things of nostalgia. We talk about, you know, memories that we have enjo found enjoyment and love for stuff that is superficial. Well, yes. You know, people are like, oh, I remember loving Ghostbusters. Well, Ghostbusters isn't particularly anything that has any great impact on, like, the human condition. Don't, don't but... get us canceled, John. Don't don't. But, we're gonna have like men's right activists knocking down our door. But but it still has an effect that is a positive effect on a person's life. Yeah. So it what leaves I leaves a mark on them that that makes a it's a creative mark. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that I don't think he falls 
one on either side of whether or not it is positive or negative. I think he is stating that these objects, these digital objects, have an impact on our lives. And whether or not that is good or bad is going to be mediated by the person and the extent to which the person allows that media to consume them, to uh, consume uh, in sort of line with microsurfs where we have relationships with things. So in Microsurfs, we have a relationship with a corporate system that then takes us over. Here, we uh, there is a big theme of obsession, obsession about the details and the thought processes and the life of a fictional entity. Um, okay. On page nine, mm-hmm. next to the bikini shot, we have a few photographs of uh, a actually pretty well done uh, Barbie doll uh, that was made by a fan. Uh, so some of my fans, so this is written from Lara's perspective, were so starved for my action figure, they created their own Lara. These pictures came from the internet. So, and I don't, that that isn't the most egregious example, but we were, we're going to come to... I think ahead later on where we have a conflict. We have a tension between um, a positive impact that games can have, where games can have a, you know, they can be revelatory. They can cause us to interact with ideas in a way, shape and form that we hadn't before in other media because of the interactive mm-hmm. nation of uh, interactive nature of it. But I, I think he also is asking, is it good if we are spending so much time thinking about this person that isn't real, like mm-hmm. if, if what Lara Croft inspires isn't, you know, really a legitimate interest in history, but a super, uh, not even uh, a very deep interest in Lara herself. Okay. I see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's interesting. It brings up some interesting questions, Nick. Yeah, but which is why I really like the book because I I don't I don't know if it lands anywhere. I I, yeah. I think it leaves it up to the reader to ask. To what extent are you comfortable giving up a portion of yourself to, giving up a portion of your identity to a media property? Yeah. Um. The other portion in this book, uh, it's highlighted on page 14. It, it's her talking about how uh, she perceived herself as a, as a kid and at that time mm-hmm. how she thought of herself. And as you grow, how you think that younger you was so stupid in comparison. And thinking that there's going to be an end point to this, uh, but there never is. There's always You're always going to grow older and look back at yourself and say, I was foolish in comparison to how I was now. Yes. Which is really interesting. And it is kind of... Uh, but it is... It's kind of str- strange in relationship to this. And I don't even really have a way to, to say, like, how is this, in all honesty, tied to Laura Croft and that phenomena? So there's all... Well, uh, so you have to... I think you have to step... Uh, you have to step back. Because it's not... She doesn't just say that there's, like, more life. That there's always another stage until obviously there isn't. Uh, but she says it never ends. There's always going to be a new and higher level. There is yeah. always going to be a new game. There will never mm-hmm. not be a Lara Croft game. So th- there's sort of like this ennui that exists about how, uh, about like these perpetual IPs, which is interesting because this is coming out 
right at right after the publication after Tomb 2 came of out. Tomb Raider 2. So it's already yeah. anticipating that it's not going to end because they're still yeah. making Tomb Raider games. And there's this question of what 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 impact can we have like if a thing can't be finished, you know, if it's always always happening. I don't know. I think that maybe it is a lot more um, of a commentary on uh, that that each subsequent game, they're going to be learning how to make better games and find better ways for people to, to connect with those characters that the newer iterations of what Laura is going to be in each subsequent game is going to be better and more uh, fleshed out. Yeah. Um, no pun intended on the flesh part. Um, Lots of, I mean, they're literally, I think in their technical commentary, um, which I think your notes are a bit better uh, on where that actually occurs, uh, but where Ados definitely has their their finger on the scale and they're talking about Tomb Raider 2, it literally comments on the fact that you can see her ears. (laughs) <laughs> uh, no, that's that's what to possibly expect in Tomb Raider 3. Oh, okay. So in Tomb Raider th- 3, we can anticipate that she'll have ears. Like, that is... That you might be able to see them in-game. Which is weird, because, like, I read that, and I was fairly confident that that was uh, a line fed by Ados, but that's creepy, man. Like, why... That's that's Kuplin talking there. That's okay. Kuplin talking. So you think that's Kuplin being critical of the the game producers that it's an inner well we'll get to it we'll get to it yeah okay so you do you want to talk uh, about the next uh, section because i think that's actually where you and i have uh this is this we're already sort of on diverging paths in this choose your own adventure um interpretation (laughs) book but so on on page 18 and 19 and the subsequent pages afterwards yeah uh there is um, there is, uh, covers for like popular mechanics and popular science. What's, and this is still from the perspective of Laura, but I still, I found this to be incredibly insightful. Uh, they talk about how technology changes over time and what influences those changes, what pushes those changes. Um, and where some people expect that to come from, uh, from just like human human nature to to evolve and change and in reality it's coming from an inspiration of um of of fiction you know uh they mentioned the popular mechanics and as you can see here what they think that the future of the airplane will be that's not what happens and that's not what the future of the airplane looks like it is not an atomic airplane but instead, what they did was looked at more of what pop culture and fiction did. It looked at the works of Jules Verne books and used that uh, in this emphasis of speed, of transportation, and used that to make planes and cars. You know, the uh, sci-fi books of the 30s and 40s to instill this desire for the space race. Um, and even goes into uh, saying that, that, that we are inspired by art to then push forward science. And what was so important for me from this commentary was that, what does that mean for the 1990s at that time? What is it, what is that, 
indication that he talks about the digital space. This video games are now at a point where they are the main source of cultural inspiration to what the future will be. Yeah. You, you, you take a far uh, more generous interpretation of what he's saying than I do. Yeah, what do, what do you get from this? Uh, so uh, just uh, can you reiterate what you were uh, what your broader point is before I attack uh, before uh, I accidentally attack a strong man? Well, the the broader point is that art is what pushes science mm-hmm. and how in the 1990s uh, that video games are at a point technologically to inspire people and help and be that art source. To then push uh, technology forward in different dire- in interesting and unique directions. Yeah. So this is where I th- this part of the book is where I think some of the bite, some of the tooth, the al dente. Um, <laughs> that's I don't know why that made me laugh, but it did. Uh, I make myself laugh on this podcast. It's that's really the only reason I do it. Otherwise, I have no joy. I'm just perfectly normal, Nick. Yeah, I'm just here in the void grading biology papers. Uh, Anyway, um, because uh, so if we go to page 25, um, where we have this lovely uh, piece of graffiti, I think I assume this is graffiti. Yeah, looks like it. Yeah, the first paragraph. It makes me think about what kind of creation this wave of enthusiastic dreamers is going to produce. Whatever it may be, it's probably going to have an on switch. And when this switch is activated, I have a hunch it's going to say, hello, I'm Lara, then promptly kickbox whoever pulled the switch right in the gut. Then it may well locate and kill a few bats at the same time. So before he's talking about things like Jules Verne and, you know, these seminal works of fiction. And I don't Mm -hmm. think that he's necessarily giving a dig at... Lara Croft in video games as a whole, but there is sort of a question of what could come from this sort of media if this is what we're obsessed with. If we're obsessed with this rich white lady running around stealing stuff from foreign nations and shooting people, what what comes of that? What what how does that what direction does that push society in if this is what people are interested in? If we're no longer interested in, and I, I, I think in some ways that would be, I, I'm being a little um, reductive of his point, but also I, if that is his point, it's also being a little, obviously people are interested in like John Wayne and Westerns and there are other media that exist. Yeah. He's being very short-sighted. He, he's being tunnel vision in the, in that statement there. Yeah. Um, so would you, where, would you disagree with me that that's sort of there? That that implication it's, is there. It's, it's there, but it's more there to directly address people who would buy this book. And who are the people who are going to buy this book? People obsessed with Laura. With Laura Croft. Yeah. It's not necessarily a a true statement or a a more um, overall effective statement. It's more uh, kind of a uh, a message to people who obsess over Laura. Yeah, so, and this is in line with sort of my reading of the text, where a a single-minded obsession with this singular character 
I, I think he views that as being potentially a very negative thing. Where if you have this tunnel vision for Lara and Lara Media, and that is all you're really interested in, that's not great for you as like yeah. a, a human. Yeah, you you should want to enjoy other things, things that like Lara is interesting and fun and worthwhile, but like maybe don't care about her boob size. But it's reductive. <laughs> To state that those people who are fans of Tomb Raider and Laura Croft only think of Tomb Raider and Laura Croft. Yeah, but I think it, it also exists on a spectrum. Come from this understanding, though, Nick, that it, immediately afterwards, right, in in this instance, because we're now in the segment where uh, Douglas Coupland talks about his thoughts on Laura Croft mm. and even states that he had no idea this person existed until a friend's like hey come play this game he doesn't play very many video games yeah you know he doesn't have much experience with those things and, and he, then he sees what the appeal is and attraction of this but even in these statements where he talks about being behind on the times and not realizing that in high school everybody was having and I quote uh major sex. I mean, that's just a fact, John. But I'm saying that he <laughs> has this he has this stereotype of people, of other people. And this is a part where I very much disagree with him and I don't like his thing. He very much is reductive of other people and and says that other people are very simple, uh single-minded in comparison to him. He has other thoughts and interests that are far broader than than a singular entity or a singular idea as sex or a video game character. And he sees these other people enjoying those things in a more elevated state than he would in particular and says, well, that must be all they think about. It's not. And you have to realize that when he has his own personal commentary that that commentary isn't necessarily right. And it may be the commentary he's making in the book, but it doesn't mean that is the correct uh, assessment of people or of a fandom or of uh, the cultural world at large. I, so he, what's interesting about... What's interesting about this book is that it comes before... So, like, fandom obviously has always, to a greater or lesser extent, existed. Yes. But it comes before, like, the moment where we're presently living in, where uh, fandom is not only a thing that exists, but is in the popular consciousness. Yeah. And I, I think that there is something interesting when you ask, well, what happens when you not only like and enjoy a thing, but that that thing becomes a part of your identity. Like the enjoyment of a thing is so important to you that it is you, that it is a replacement yeah. of you. Yeah. Where if anyone does anything that you sort of vaguely dislike with that property, like let's talk about Star Wars. If I make a bad Star Wars movie, there are people who were devastated by that. And like, yeah, being disappointed is healthy, but being yeah. broken by it is weird. 
Like that that right. that that is not great. Nothing is sacred. Nothing being upset because the cultural like the 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 uh, the the cultural makeup of Star Wars is slightly changed from the very heteronormative, very white cast of the 1970s. Like yeah, that the, that the cultural wave has swept you by and is moving in a direction that you were not in direct control of. Yeah, and, and like that. It is so both like your identity of whiteness and also your identity of Star Wars are so intrinsic to your self value and self identity that if anything in Star Wars changes, oh my God, they got more black people and Asian people, not even really more. They just have a more important role in in the story that just wrecks you. And I, I think that in some ways, like, again, I think that you're right, that it is a bit reductive. But I think in some ways it's also prescient. It, it is anticipating a moment where everything, including our our consumption of media, it becomes a part of our, like, our DNA. And if somebody does something to it that we don't like, it isn't just like, oh, that's annoying. I don't, uh, that's gross. I don't really like Indiana Jones, the fourth movie, which is the correct opinion, John. Um, but <laughs> it, it, it's not like that where it's like, oh, I don't like that. Or if you like it, that's fine, but I don't like it. But like if somebody has a different opinion <laughs> than I do about this media property, they are Hitler and I hate them. Hey, anyone who doesn't think the Temple of Doom is the best Indiana Jones movie is just intrinsically wrong. I mean, or or they've uh, <laughs> they've seen how racist that movie is, and they're like, "Oops." So, <laughs> so <laughs> we move on to the next portion of the book, where he talks about <laughs> the comparison <laughs> of the Stepford Wives to um, to Laura Croft. <laughs> <laughs> are you okay there nick uh, i'm pretty sure i have last laugh induced asthma we would normally edit that out but here it is no i would have kept that in i would have kept that in nick <laughs> that's true um so he talks about uh the the movie the stepford wives and um and how uh, people were using robots to replace women. Yes, you know to to fulfill a man's desires, etc. And how Laura Croft is the opposite mm-hmm. of a Stepford wife, uh, resolutely strong and adventurous, and would kick the ass out of any person who would try to objectify her in that way. Which is part of what you were saying previously, when it says that it's a switch and it says "Hello, I'm Laura," and then decides to kickbox you. Yeah. Um. Because it's a it's a fight against those people that try to objectify that person. I think he's talking more about AI and robotics and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I also like I, I so like if you take it if you take the yarn a little further, it ends up being so in the the case of the Stepford wives, the the wives are being replaced by robots, right? Which spoilers, yeah. apologies. Uh, but, oh yeah, for that fifty year old movie. Yeah, but in the case of Lara. Lara is replacing us. She is taking a part of us. We are the Stepford Wives. No, no, no. It's not the... No, Nick. It's saying that... That... uh, 
we aren't trying to use technology to fulfill our desires. We are seeing something and we are trying to fulfill its desire instead of the other way around is what he is saying. Mm. He's saying that, that agree to disagree, John Laura Croft has had on us has made us want to create Laura Croft, not create our own personal, you know, sex doll. Yeah. She's just also our kidney and heart. No, the effect that she has had on a person's life and, and creativity. Um, also, it says, though, that because of a movie like The Stepford Wives, that uh, people have grown up since seeing this movie and developed a phobia for using high tech for evil and Stepfordian gains. And I'm just like, how wrong you are. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How wrong he is. I'm like, the modern day is... Because, of course, this is now almost 30 years later. It's 22 years later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and how technology has absolutely been used for evil gains and step 40 and stuff. I mean, we are making sex weird. dolls. That is definitely the case. And, and we're the making v- ladies simulacra. V- yes. The VR, you know, uh, tutor the anime girl tutor that you end up doing stuff with. Senpai noticed like, me. Yeah, exactly. And also, also, uh, to talk about how in reality, um, uh, the pushback of, of people wanting strong and, and strong characters in video games. And while I would say that the Laura Croft is, in this iteration, you know, slightly problematic in reality, you know, built specifically for the male gaze, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. Um, but I do feel that it it very much highlights uh, this, this pushback towards the idea of having strong female characters and how uh, something like Laura Croft didn't push forward this idea of having more diverse and complex female characters in games and in reality caused a giant tidal wave of people wanting things to not be more interesting and diverse and to cater towards a very particular perspective, which is chauvinistic and, and small and tiny. Yeah. Ignore me as I pour myself more whiskey. That's okay. Yeah. It's a good old Dewey's number 69. It's a local bourbon. It's great. 69. I know. Right. It's nice. Uh, so, um, but uh, yeah, so, no, I I wanted to uh, pull on that thread as well. Okay, if you could pull. just repeat it real fast because my brain wiped when I was pouring myself whiskey. Oh, so <laughs> you weren't listening? I w- no, I, I was see. listening. Okay. I just okay. forgot. Okay. I see. I listen to when you talk. I, That's fine. I love you. Oh I yeah, yeah. So the, the the little point that I wanted to add to that is that uh, so this is also so we're talking the nineties, right? It's not yeah. until about now <laughs> where we're really starting to get more women, people of color. I mean, obviously, throughout like Hollywood's history, yeah, uh, those people have been participating in media in at all levels. But it isn't until now that like we're really seeing those people like head these sort of commercial ventures, right? 
Yeah. And that's and creative where creative endeavors, these yeah. these major investments in and stuff like this. Yeah. And and that's where we're seeing there is less and less there are more and more um really good characters. And this isn't to say that like all of our problems are solved and magically patriarchy and racism has gone away and homophobia and all those things. Obviously those things are still there and there are still people who make garbage. But and the pushback is still intense. Oh yeah, it, it is. But like, if you go on Netflix, you can find like um, Shira, which historically was a very male gazy, uh, is a very male gazy sort of show. But the newest rendition, Princess of Power, which I suggest everyone watch, um, made by Noel Stevenson, I believe, um, is very wonderfully queer. It is it is the opposite of what. She-Ra was. It is not about her femininity. It, it, well, in a ma- it, from a masculine gaze, it is not heteronormative. It is wonderfully queer. It has a whole spectrum of you know what it means to be a woman, and that's something that the Tomb Raider, and this is something that we've I, I think we struggled with with both Amulet of Power and. Um, the lost, lost cult, cult, where I, I was coming, I, it was coming to me. <laughs> uh, the The brain, the brain is mostly thinking about atoms and how they they work, because that's the lessons we're teaching right now. But there you go. Yeah, other things we would normally cut, but won't. But um, it, it is those books are hard because in in some ways. The representation of Lara is pretty okay. Like, she isn't overly sexualized, even though E.E. E. Knight definitely steps as close to that line as possible. Yeah, there's just mo- some moments here and there, but not uh, gratuitous. Yeah. You know, necessarily. But uh, as, as I, we've said in other um, podcasts, it is an ideal representation in, in the sense that it isn't, uh, it isn't showing women or uh, different groups of people from a different perspective. It is still uh, a man writing about a woman. Not to say that isn't possible and that they can't do a good job of it, but it's not um, authentic in the same way that women writing about women would be. And that's also not to imply that all women writing about women do a very good job. Like sometimes they, you know, um, internalized misogyny is a thing. So yeah. it is, you know, as the media scape that we're interacting with becomes, you know, more complicated because it becomes more diverse. It, it, it is also, I think, improving overall. We are dragging it, you know, kicking and screaming towards more representation and ultimately more interesting narratives, um, yes. more interesting perspectives. Uh, well, well. I agree, Nick, and I think that you're talking about the objectification of Laura Croft is a great segue into the next segment <laughs> of the book. Wait, wait, we have to stay on task? We're not allowed just to talk about... Laura's background. You can see the shadow of my hand mm-hmm. flailing wildly. It's a hot hand. Um, you're going to keep that breath in there. It was a good breath. Yeah. It talks about how she became Laura Croft, the Tomb Raider, being stranded in the Himalayas as a teenager, and her survival has instilled her desire for adventure, which gets retconned later on is definitely not the case. Um, And then, of course, her vital statistics, including her measurements. That made me mad. 
I think it, it was is, there in part to make me mad. But you have well, you say that, but I had mentioned earlier that in every single depiction of Laura Croft in media, magazines, interviews, you know, uh, interviews, these sorts of things, they're always displayed. Mm-hmm. Always displayed. This vital statistics, all of this is included. Always. Like, this is a situation where this information is just put in there because fans want to know. Yeah. You know? I find it very funny that her favorite bands are U2 and Nine Inch Nails, two distinctly different bands. <laughs> very different. Um, But also that they are, you know, the two big highlights of the Tomb Raider movie soundtrack uh, that they did, which is interesting. And that her employment is archaeologist and writer of travel guides. Uh, what 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 uh, is the significance of the latter? I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's something that Jeeves actually talks about in his letter. Yeah. Is that a part Jeeves of the fiction? Did. I just assumed it was. Yes. That she writes I, travel I guides. I guess. I guess. But like in the and books, then... that's never a, an important detail, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it, it, in this case, I think that it's still subversive. Um, yeah. So are you familiar at all with the Aeneid? No. So the Aeneid is this lovely book uh, that largely glorifies, uh, written by Virgil. Uh, in, you know, oh yeah, Virgil. You written know. by Virgil, and you know, from uh, that, Devil May Cry, obviously. Yeah. Uh, at the beginning of the Roman Empire. And yes. it, it, there are a lot of different okay, readings. Okay, Devil May Cry 2, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of different readings of uh, the Aeneid where when you're looking at what Virgil's talking about, it in a very literal and very uh, superficial sense seems to be quite um, – it, it, it is praising uh, the Julian-Claudio line. It is mm-hmm. celebrating because Aeneas is from – Caesar's and then subsequently his adopted son Augustus or Octavian, uh, who ends up being emperor. Uh, it is uh, Aeneid is you know their ancestor and one of their most important ancestors, and also conveniently the founder of Rome. Uh, so this book, this lovely poem written in the style of the Iliad, this epic poem. Uh, celebrates, in a quite literal sense, the Julio-Claudians and specifically Augustus because most of the other Julio... None of the other Julio-Claudians were alive or relevant yet. Yeah. But there is a lot of biting commentary that gets snuck in there. Yes. And I think that that is what... I I think that while... I don't think he wanted to say that her 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 boobs were 34D. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I don't think he wanted to include that. Because, like, so far the emphasis, even though, like, a lot of the art is rather sexual, I, I, I think that we are, he's criticizing, in their face, even, the property and the people who I make the property. Know. I don't know if that's the case. Which, by the way, I just compared this to the the Aeneid. (laughs) Yes. I don't think that's necessarily the case in this particular section. There's not much to it outside of, like, looking at the variety of different um, 
things, but in the next section, A Day in the Life of Laura Croft, I think you're absolutely correct. Yeah, uh, so the only, uh, before we move on to that, I, yes. We've spent a lot of time on these twenty pages. I know it looks like we're going to. Well, spend... those first twenty pages are really are really dense. There's dense. There's a lot to talk about. A lot of questions raised that don't happen as we continue in this book because we're only on page thirty nine of a whopping like hundred and eighty seven. Yeah, but trust me, most of those are just the walkthrough, and which we will go through real fast. Uh, but yeah, I, I I think part of it is. Nope, that thread's gone. Yep, it's gone. See? And just like that, we we're doing it live, John. We're doing it live. Okay. Um, uh, do we have any questions or comments? No, it's dead silent in the chat, Nick. Nobody likes me. I'm kidding. It's not great. I love you. Uh, <laughs> so, one of the things here is that it's a day in the life of Laura Croft, and it's talking about the 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 actual beauty of her and uh and it says let me show you what i think of her and the dialogue gets wackadoo <laughs> so there's a lot of juxtaposition we also this. argued a lot before the pod, uh, before the podcast yeah. about this there's a lot of juxtaposition in the art here mm-hmm. this kind of her lounging on a motorcycle her bursting through guns blazing you know and uh this other instance she's got uh, ears john look at those sexy yeah, like, ears her on the motorcycle her lounging her shooting guns nibble her that earlobe. winking at you these sorts of things are trying to show this juxtaposition of this character there's a chinese and dragon for some reason there's a whole there's a lot of does like, she go to china stuff. in the earlier games yeah, she does. Okay. She goes all over the place. She jet sets. Um but the the word so the the visuals of this are him depicting like the various facets of this character and that he thinks is important. Um and just to showcase the art of of the character in general, but the words mm-hmm. the words that accompany them become madness. Yeah, I I called you called the madness. I called them intentionally vapid. I I, think I don't know if they're intentionally vapid. I think that he very much got high, <laughs> looked at these images, and did a stream of consciousness mm-hmm. of what he felt was fitting of the image. Well, there was a reason why we, before we accepted the, you know, the very copious amount of 25 cents from body safes, uh, to talk yes. about their product that we almost, uh, Hey, I got a coupon for a, a free, you know, appendectomy and replace my appendix with, uh, you know, a, a safety deposit box. Wait, you only will... got that. No. I didn't, they didn't, there wasn't two. No, just one. Ah, uh, I see. I we're still fighting, apparently. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, th- there's a reason why we almost accepted magic mushrooms as being our advertiser. Oh, as a, oh my goodness, yeah, magic mushrooms. Yeah, they were really pushing for magic mushrooms. Yeah, but no. they just they only were gonna give us a nickel. I don't deal in psychedelics. That's just not me. Ah. Um, I have I have a firm st- anti psychedelics 
I'm not really. Everybody, <laughs> do what you need to do. Do what you need to do. <laughs> We've caused a war. <laughs> I'm going to die. Do you have the words, Nick, that accompany these series of pages? Uh, I mean, I'm looking. Where do you want me to start? Start on page 42. Page 42. Read it all, because it's not very long. Yeah, that's true. I'll follow along for you, because it's crazy. Let's get some mouth sounds in there. We're ready. Yeah, great mouth sounds. That's perfect. Not editing out any of those. Those are all going to stay. Nope. Uh, What edit? We're doing this live. I know. We're doing it live! Uh, I I just love that Bill O'Reilly gave us that. Like, that's the only good thing that man has ever done. (laughs) is that video anyway Lara is always one step ahead of me it's best to stay out of her way if she needs my help her back is covered Lara fascinates me I wonder what is she thinking behind that coy smile which by the way the picture of her smile that is not what I would call coy that is what I would call like manic deranged 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 yeah Behind that coy smile, her mind is racing towards some conclusion, some solution that I can only guess at. In the world we share, Lara accentuates the positive. I have to note here, this drives me insane, two periods. Oh, I didn't even notice that. We don't have the full ellipsis. We couldn't afford the. Th- we couldn't full. You afford couldn't the third? afford the third period. <laughs> yeah. To end up the ellipses, but like, so the, what thought are they continuing there at that point? Uh, like what the the th- I mean the thought continues on page forty nine. Yeah, go for it, Lara. Which the the I actually did not originally see that. So I didn't even see that until you just said it now either. Yeah, Lara. So the graphic design is interesting. Travels through a world of dangerous beauty every step every movement has its purpose she is a composition of devastating force set against a backdrop of intelligence and intuition perhaps it's that juxtaposition that draws me to her there's no telling what she'll come up against next there's no question that her response will be the appropriate one um, block dive salad pool block Rex crocodile crocodile Sion. push crow crow scion sharks block. puma on the next uh, page there are sharks that's actually I really like this image it's really pretty yeah yeah it's really well done like I I like these early polygons we we talked. Um, this is this is not the in-game footage, by the way. This is all just them doing uh, CGI pre-rendered scenes. This is just the, the fancy stuff that they show people. Yeah, but I like it's not what the game looks like. It does not look nearly this good. We, we've we've talked about how we like low poly. I mean, this isn't the lowest of poly, but I like low poly. Low poly's nice. Yeah. There's good imagery here that isn't just weird, but it is the words are very very weird indeed. Uh, so do we want to carry on? Keep going. In my mind, this is my favorite part. I can see Lara somersaulting away from some monstrous lizard in the Lost Valley, or perched atop an enormous pyramid near Atlantis, or running along the Great Wall of China. I imagine her under pressure, 
training some enormous weapon on a deserving target. And I ask myself, as I'm sure you have on so many occasions, Hificat? HFCIT, what the hell does this mean? How fucking cool is it? Yeah, we looked it up. And well, there's wait, what is a the T? Vague... It's how fucking cool is that? Is that. Okay. Uh, that there was a vague, like, one instance of us explaining that HFCIT stands for how fucking cool is that? I wonder if that's just, like, an acronym from, like, the early internet days that just did not catch on. Like, it I'm wasn't guessing. a lol or a Mao. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's like, Hificate, fuck Hificate. 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 And then we have the letter from Jeeves. Yeah. And Laura being guns and nightwear. Guns, uh, nightwear, uncomfortably attractive. A lot of instances, also, I would note that in the the very beginning of the book, too, a lot of instances of kind of grayscaling the image to make it look like she's naked. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They do that a lot. Yeah, kind of weird. on page 59, we have her world devours me, punishes me, hit me, daddy, rewards me on page 60, and I surround myself. I actually, so I think I noted 61. I think 61 is just a dope image where we have a metal, like it's, li- uh, I'm pretty sure this is an actual like physical It's her sculpture. costume on a, on a wireframe mannequin. Yeah. That's what it is. It, it is the actual costume that the, um, that the model wore. Yeah, so if you're willing to buy this book, which it only costs like $13, I think. Actually, no, I think I got it for you for like 4 didn't yeah, I? it was very cheap. Yeah. Yeah, it was So very if you cheap. want to get this book, page 61, page 61 is gorgeous. It's a wonderful uh, little page. Yeah. I think it looks great. Yeah. So, like, I mean, that's mostly it. And then we get to the part where you, like, obsessively read letters. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. But no, because it, it says them with mementos of our time together. Oh, I skipped that. Do you that. find that odd? Laura understands. Laura never doubts my sincerity. She never doubts at all. She should. And so this has a series of letters, and I obsess over this because it has phone numbers. It has addresses. It has names. Yeah. So we this is you theorized that this was something that Ados wanted. That they wanted yeah. to, because of your experience with other video game, video game magazines, magazines the importance things. of fan mail, as you can see on page uh, sixty-eight, uh, they have all the um, the mail, the envelopes having art of people's art of Laura in different yeah. various costumes, dominatrix Laura, those sorts of things. Yeah, and we um, we had a bit of a discussion about whether or not, to what extent, Douglas Copeland wanted this to be in there you were suspicious that he didn't want it to be there and that might be the case but i think that it's so assuming that ados wanted this i think he well i don't care it's a greek word (laughs) they can pronounce it however they want but i i see you i see you ei i know how to pronounce you uh (laughs) i thought you were saying you could see me rolling my eyes very hard no i couldn't uh (laughs) uh but I, I think they very he very intentionally put some things that are not great. Like he he's I, like I, okay, you want fan mail, uh, you yeah. want other media being produced by other people. Well, here's some garbage. Here's some On stuff that here, sucks. A person's suggestions for Tomb Raider three, 
And I quote, hold on. <laughs> it's the highlighted section. I doubt it was initially highlighted. should shake when she runs. Yes, just uh, again, one more time for emphasis because I was talking over Her boobs, her boobs. Which ones? Should shake when she runs. Yes, her boobs, not someone else's. But also talks about how awesome it and Resident Evil is Mm. and how much they love it. Um, And that has that person's phone number. And I like that that was point one. Like, yes, that's she cool. should Most ride important. more stuff like dirt bike, jet ski, Hummer. Like that's less important than her boob jiggle. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to find Jesse Morefield. If anybody knows where Jesse Morefield is from, uh, uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. Like, yeah. I want to find Jesse Morefield. John has started stalking. Is. So if we could, I've been stalking and sending emails out to many Jesse Moorefields out there in the world who may possibly have been that person. Um, but uh, it's fascinating. I think what happened in reality is that he, when interviewing Idos and stuff like this, saw the fan mail, saw the artwork, Idos, and was like, Idos. It is pronounced Idos. Idos. You can say that, but uh, how many video games have you played? How how many ancient Greek texts have you read? Uh, Nick, how many video games have you played? How many ancient Greek texts have you read that use ancient Greek words, John? Nick, <laughs> it doesn't matter. They pronounce it Idos. I don't. I don't care. I don't. I don't care because I'm. I'm. I'm a classicist, John. Her uh, conviction is high caliber, high fashion, panoramic, big screen. Um, this is great. I, this is one of my favorite uh, pages. In this whole thing, <laughs> because it has the star with Laura seen with her new man, and it is George Clooney uh, with Chris O'Donnell next to them. So clearly, this was Batman and Robin. Mm-hmm. Um, they just photoshopped Laura Croft with George the Clooney. The best Joel Schumacher film. You know what? I'm the- not gonna say you're wrong. <laughs> what you you're not an Independence Day fan? I think that Batman and Robin and uh, the what, Batman Forever mm-hmm. um, are trying to replicate the uh, 1960s Batman and mm-hmm. succeed at doing so. Are they good? But do they succeed at replicating the 1960s Batman? Yes, 100% they do. Low bars are easy, says Sakura. Um, so Sakura says and brings up, oh, there was a, a lot of jokes when Quake 3 came out. Its big thing was curved services. Cue the jokes for Tomb Raider. <laughs> exactly. Yep. So, uh, yeah, I don't even want to, man, Laura, then it talks about like the, just the cultural impact of Laura being translated in all these different languages Mm-hmm. And how she speaks in a language all her own, and violence, and poise. <laughs> and then just a bunch of words like crocodilo, you know, crocodilo, crocodile in Spanish. And, like, just another word salad. Yeah. Laura is capturing hearts. I mean, th- those uh, those sections, I think, are largely for aesthetics rather than uh, content. Like, it, yeah. It's just it's it's strange. It is strange, and then like her in polo gear and and uh, karate gi or judo. Do you and do you think she has hobbies, John? 
I mean, obviously. I mean, it seems good to think of her in a leisurely way. I don't. I'd imagine that even her recreation has an edge to it. The next. And what would be the next page is freaking weird, man. What would be suitable though? Something fast and graceful, or something requiring both class and courage. Something fluid and beautiful, yet not without an undercurrent of violence. Weird is eighty-two and eighty-three. Weird. Is 82 and 83. <laughs> it's Lara's world, but we have shared it together as she floats sexually. And that might just be my imposition, but I think that's intentional no, in the composition. Um, in like it's what? Laura's book. What's really Laura's weird, actually, world. is that like, so I think it's meant to be several feet of water, but like the way she's floating, it looks like she's actually just sitting in like a couple inches. She's in a shallow pool. Yeah. yeah it is, it, but also like just lazily holding her gun in in her crotch like yeah it's one of the strangest images in this whole book yeah it does look like she's just in a shallow pool i will say that the complication i had for giving this a nine was that literally the the sort of hard line you and i had for the other novels was that if it spent a significant amount of time on the sex of the sexiness of Lara Croft. Yeah. That that was a hard no. Yes. We were we were going to be that was something that regardless we were going to be angered by. Yeah. Uh and this book does that. But I think it's largely being critical of it. I don't But know. it's like that's hard. It is hard. But then it, I, it, it's sort of like when you do imagery. Like look at the I mean the next page after that. The the crazy yeah. crazy grin. The weird creepy grin. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah, it, it, part of the struggle is also like when it, it, it's sort of like if somebody makes a racist joke but they're making a racist joke to make fun of racism but at some point like where like what distinguishes you know, if you are if you're saying these racist things, what distinguishes you from a racist? What distinguishes satire from sincerity? Yeah, so like it's if you're sexualizing her in this book, what what where does satire or criticism begin and misogyny end? I mean, Nick. Yeah. I mean, it even says on page eighty-five. That not all of the sites are G-rated. Yeah, it does. I I tried to see if any of these sites were functional. And I'm going to restate that because I looked away from my mic. I tried to see if any of these sites were functional, and I didn't find many. You got to go to the Wayback Machine. That's true. I should have done that. I'll do it maybe for the gram. Do it for the gram. For the gram. Do it for the gram, uh, yes. On Instagram, we have uh, the Literate Pixel podcast, where I mostly post about cats, and sometimes I don't post anything for a week because I'm just drowning and teaching. Or you could be like me, who have uh, you know, I, faced you, serious voice issues and d- delving deep into depression and oversharing way too much information on my social media. Yeah. Yeah, we got problems, John. Tomb Raider 1 gameplay strategies. Uh-huh. Caves. I begin my uh, adventure in a small network of caves. This is the word salad. Uh-huh. Climb the block to the upper area. Kill the bear from above. Kill the bear. Climb the stairs on the opposite side of the room. Throw the switch to stop the blades. Find the secret. Check the alcove. I'm shocked you're reading 
as much as you are. I, I'm already on page 97. Jump across the stream. Find the secret. <laughs> Climb. Find the secret. Page 101. Jump. Yeah, just... It's this madness. Page 105. Come to the Neptune key. Like, and it's done in a way... Word salad. Uh-huh. Look. In front, switch. Hole into the shoot many wolves, pull out the block. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's and it's like vertical. Like the words are vertical. Yeah, like, I don't. I I think. What th- is the point of this? One of the days. One of the days in the future. Sweet college days. Uh, one of one of these halcyon days, days of yore. Halcyon days of yore. You and I are going to have to play a Lara Croft game, but strictly according to the instructions in this thing do nothing else if it does not say it we do not do it i'm curious to know how accurate it is how how well it works the book in the beginning of this actually has an in uh in small print stating that they do not attest to the accuracy of the walkthrough and yeah they're like i think part of it if it works or not like if you go to page 100 uh there's Throw the switch, 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 throw the switch. Like, part of, and those are all big and bolded. Like, it's... Yes. What is, what is emphasized, um, you know, run, jump, and grab from the ledge toward the guns, climb onto the invisible platform. Part of this comes off yeah. real salty. Like, it, it comes off, like, not terribly liking the property. There is an instance where it is, like, kill the henchman, kill the henchman, kill the henchman, kill, kill, kill. Oh, on page 104, we got another throw the switch. Throw the switch. Throw the switch. It, it, it's, yeah. it, it is just... So there's, like, I, I think somewhere in here... Uh, and I don't have the patience to find it or to analyze it. I begin facing Nala's <laughs> enormous mutant. I, I think there is an interesting um, commentary about the repetitiveness of it. Because I really think that's what it's getting at. Like, if you look at the words that it emphasizes, it is their words that are repeated a lot. A lot of action. Well, a lot run, of action words. Grab, but like they're shoot exactly the same yeah it is throw the switch a billion times dodge kill the kill Kill the the. yeah yeah anyway Um, we get to the birth of an icon and it's not that important look they're like hey ados propaganda yeah we went to e3 not looking to make a big waves and then everybody thought we were the best and we got game of the show in 1996 also, no, what bothers me so much, this, there's something that does bother me in this, mm-hmm. um, and that they say that in 1996, yeah. and I quote, the industry was crowded with ill-conceived, poorly executed attempts to wring the last few dollars out of an increasingly cynical public. And I was like, yeah, right, except for the fact that Quake existed at that time, Duke Nukem 64, Duke Nukem 3D. Um, Mario 64, uh, tons of amazing quality games. Diablo, they came out in 1996. Riven. Well, I mean, my um, understanding is that Tomb Raider mechanically isn't 
the best as a 3D not. platformer. But the gate but this thing is such propaganda to state like the games industry was stagnant and there was nothing interesting or new. Yeah. Um but e- and but even so like I I think we both agree this is propaganda and this is Ados like would not have published this book without this bit in it. But even in yeah. it when you're looking at like are you on 110 right now? I'm on 107, but I'll go to. Can you flip to 110? What do you see in the bottom left-hand corner? Uh, butts and boobs and wireframe. So you have wireframe, but like the central wireframe image, right, is horrifying. Yes. It's got those big globular eyes. Like I, I feel like this might have been required, in in the same way that the, um, and again, this is all speculation. This is this is a guess by us. But it it's him interviewing us. them and seeing that wireframe and being like, "That's fucking weird. I want that in the book." Well, I, I think, it, it, but also like that—that that is as close to a dig or a criticism or a detraction as he can get without no. crossing a line. Sakura says in chat that that's how it works even today. That's how that looks. That's what. No, I know. I get that. That's how it looks, but that's not what you're meant to see. Yeah. But that's the that's the point of the birth of the icon. All of this stuff is done in wireframe <laughs> at that point, all of it, and so it's just trying to show you, uh, the, the the kind of the making mm-hmm. of is what it's trying to highlight. Yeah. Even though it does look freaky and weird, I do like, like that you made me laugh so hard that like my laugh induced asthma will not stop. That's good. <laughs> yeah, that's I'm sorry that, that I've that, caused that, you this pain. That they're just going to be coughs throughout this podcast the book even says uh building laura's world from squares and blocks and defining laura's movements in terms of the distance she could travel as a measure of those cubes gave birth to a new kind of puzzle block puzzles Uh uh-huh and me in all caps in my notes says yeah block moving puzzles that people hate also, Mario on the NES used blocks as a measurement of distance over a decade beforehand. Also, you're not doesn't Link use block? Like, how are we defining block puzzles? Because uh, we're talking very complicated, moving blocks, big gigantic blocks around to fit into holes. Is that and not like, something that happened in uh, the, not the in Zelda? The way that the, not in the way that this does it. Zelda would have you like push a block. Yeah, it was very. They were a lot more simple then at that point. It, I mean, I guess the Zelda and the SNES might have, but those were like more just move things into place uh, on that two dimensional plane. And there's a lot more going on here that really annoys the crap out is of you. Is that a because, weird head to like place your laurels upon? Like, yeah. Oh but, God, we can have her push boxes. They talk about the revolutionary game design concept of uh, thinking about the how far her jump goes and then building the levels around those concepts of what mobility tools she has and i'm like but that's always been in that's just basic game design yeah is like that is that even Mario. what the attractive part of her initial video games was that's them patting themselves on the shoulder saying we we thought about stuff in our game design that we were trying to actually think about level design Doesn't everyone though i mean like no they don't you say this but they don't uh I, oh, especially in the 1990s they didn't okay sure 
Um, I was and, born or five in the 90s. So, And that was where the quote came about the, the future of Laura Croft. They're working on Laura Croft, Tomb Raider 3. And now, for example, like what to expect. So for example, has anyone else noticed that Laura has never shown her ears? She just might. Dot, dot, dot. They actually used the proper ellipses here. I'm proud of them for this. Mazel tov. But then we get into more... Hold on. There's a lot of talk. It's nonsense. More word salad. Tomb Raider 2 guides. Not interesting. Not great at all. And immediately into Tomb Raider Gold gameplay strategies. Again, not, not interesting. Pretty filler. Boring. I don't know if it's filler. I think there is something artistically there. But they it had is... to include it because no. it's a prima guy. Yes. And you I, know? But I think, like, again, when we're on... Go to page 124. 124. Yep. Uh, so, green and purple this time. Throw the switch. Throw the switch. Throw the switch. Throw the switch. Throw it again on page 125. Throw the switch. I, I think that there is... There's common... There's, there's rhyme and reason to this. But it is rhyme and reason that neither you nor I have the patience to uh, parse. Yeah, I like that on page 125, it begins with, I begin underwater, but in the most nonsensical way possible. Oh, yeah. I, I there's I think there's something here. Like, I, I just, I, I think that there's something here. I am too lazy to find it. I think <laughs> I am this was frank. just the work of the, 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 um, the layout person, that they just did this. Yeah, they worked with like, him, and he was just like, I don't make it a mess. Emphasize stupid words, action words, those sorts of things. To highlight the 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 actions, facets of this character. Yeah, but I like if if you're reading this guide, the game doesn't come off all that well. It comes off horribly boring. Like, yes, and I I just I can't envision that there isn't a level of intentionality there. Like that well, is... Nick, you want to know what's not boring? Oh, yeah. No, I know what's not boring. The... Air Tibet. Air Tibet. A Laura Croft action-adventure comic. I, before we get into this, I want, I want Chad to comment on whether or not they agree with me. I don't think this counts as a comic. Oh, well, I mean, they don't know yet. They haven't no, I know. It. No, I know. But they have to see it first. Uh, yeah. But I mean, before they this. see it, I want, I want to prejudice them toward my uh, point of view. Which is that comics, the like they're obviously a mixture of visual and literary media, but the visual component of a comic book is super important. And yeah. I think you could read this fan fiction without any of the visuals and it would make as much sense. All right. We're not going to read the whole is. thing, are we? We're just going to no, describe it, right? I wish I could. I wish I could. <laughs> I wish I could read this in its entirety to prove to the world that I am not crazy, that this is insane. Well, we'll definitely find important things. So the right. the Air Tibet, a Lara Croft action adventure comic starts off with Lara in a Himal Himalayan film shoot, which I'm sure you're showing that page now. 
Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, where we have a pretty good silhouette of her, and all of the art in this is primarily either in grayscale or silhouette of some yes. sort. Um, but she is there because Damien, a director, uh, wanted oh, her no. to be there. Damien's not the director. Oh, is it Dominic Bellini? Uh, Bellini? Which, which Dominic D? is Dominic is the director. Damien is. Hold on. Damien is the defense minister. Oh, right. That's weird. I So Damien wanted her at this film for some reason that I continue to not understand. Okay. The, the, you'll be very confused about all of this. He called Laura Croft on her emergency only phone. Yes. To have to do a meet and greet with this actress named Joni. Uh, Joni who is filming the scene in the Himalayas for Amazon Queen, right? Uh, is what it's called? Uh, Amazon Princess. An- Amazon Princess. She does, like, very Xena, pulpy lady films. Yeah. Yeah. So Laura's annoyed by this. Yeah, is, as is a waste off. of her time. And Damien's like, well, I got a plane to catch. I'm meeting up with Ming Wo, mm-hmm. a Chinese opium dealer and nuclear arms stockpiler. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And Laura is, of course, like, he's a scumbag. He's the worst of the worst. And he's like, well, I'll be flying by over the set. Wave to me when I go. Bye. Laura meets uh, Joni. Yeah. And immediately notices. After shooting some apples. Yeah. Totally unimportant. She's bored and just dumb. Also, their reaction to it makes literally no sense. Because if a lady pulled out a gun and started shooting at a tree, I wouldn't be like, hey, stop it. You're being too loud. I'd be like, holy mother of God, there's a crazy person over there. Everyone run. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And everybody is... uh, uh, looking for Terry, this yeah, assistant look at page makeup artist for the uh, for the chat. Yeah, yeah, for the nuclear arms stockpiling. Yep. No, yeah. no, no, no. Yep. One fifty six is the apple shooting. Uh, oh, sorry, the apple shooting. Yes, there she is shooting apples. Um, the the director is an asshole. Uh, it, this is him saying that Hollywood is stupid and vapid and totally dumb. Mm-hmm. He hates Hollywood. Uh, and so she meets Joni and notices immediately that Joni is wearing a <laughs> necklace, a necklace that has a history. She asks Joni where she got that necklace and Joni tells the tale. Nick, you want to tell what, how Joni got that necklace? Uh, I mean, how, how much detail do you want me to give? Cause this is typically where I would jokingly be very reductive. She goes to meet Ming Wo. <laughs> oh, so we're not even going to give it to me. Yep. And uh, <laughs> she's flirting with his son, Ping. Oh, it's something that I do want to say is that something yes. that's very weird is that at this moment, it goes to third person plural. So we're yeah. initially in third person singular, normal narrative. Oh, he does this a lot in this thing, too. Yeah. We flash back to. We, we go to, like, know. the royal we. So we flash back to the previous night. Which is a very script sort of thing to do, rather than a a narrative of any sort. Yeah. Yeah. So she she flirts with the son Ping by stroking his genitals under a table. 
mm-hmm. um, with her leg. And with her leg. And she tells him that she would really, he's like, I'll give you anything to to have sex with you. And she's like, okay, well, there's one thing I'd really like. Do you have any jewels around? Any egg-shaped ones that yeah, she yeah. traces with a with a celery stick, of course, you know, to be like, it's a testicle. It's your balls. Yeah. Um, and uh, he's like, I, oh, yeah, I got one. I definitely got that. Uh, weirdly specific that we, yep, definitely have it. Definitely have it. Uh-huh. And so uh-huh. Uh-huh. he gives it to her, and they go and do it. And the sex scene, of course, cuts to black. Yeah, no, no, it doesn't just her. cut to black. It does something even weirder than that. Um, where is it? Oh God, what line? So, oh yeah. So it's she places it around her neck, puts her arm around Ping, and with the other reaches to pull blackness down from the sky, as though lowering a blind. Yes. Like, that's so bizarre. I mean, it makes more sense, I guess, later, sort of. Uh, but it's still weird. And then we go it, back it, to the third-person plural perspective, where yeah, now we're Laura. back at the film shoot. Yeah. Here's the thing. All of a sudden, the plane goes overhead. Mm-hmm. And Laura and Joni get sucked up into... What is it? Uh, uh, the shame spiral? It is the lie cheese solar shame spiral. Yep. <laughs> it is a tornado that emerges when wanting to uh, to right a wrong of an underdog. Apparently, yep. apparently, this necklace is one of two, one of a pair. That when put together gives unlimited power I mean, to its owner. You always have two eggs, John. You got two ovaries. You always the two just the, the two balls. The, two balls. <laughs> Unless you are a disgraced Tour de France bikes bicyclist. Yeah, then you have fewer than that, yes. Indeed. Yep. Mm-hmm. So Joni is like, what the hell's happening? One olive short of like, a martini, one might say. I mean, it's clearly the lie she uh, shame spiral. <laughs> that's. Like, I feel like that's what I go through every morning. Like I wake up and I'm like, oh god, my lesson plan is garbage. I'm gonna go through the, the, the light cheese <laughs> shame spiral. Solar, the light cheese solar <laughs> shame spiral. Why education sucks. Ah, and it also it holds the plane that flew overhead with Damien in it in place with a tendril of fire. Mm-hmm. murders everybody on the set and the, the douchebag director gets decapitated and put on a plate of beans and toast. Um, Which, I mean, uh, who doesn't enjoy a full English breakfast? Man's so, head, beans and toast. Yeah. Bangers. So the Lai solar, sh- Chi solar shame spiral places Laura and Joni on the wing of the plane, mm-hmm. where Ming Wo and apparently, Damien. and uh, well, Ming Wo in particular has the other amulet, apparently, mm-hmm. because how else could he have accrued all of this power in opium and nuclear weapons? Mm-hmm. Uh, he used these amulets to gain power. Laura sees Damien and is like, 
either open the window of the plane or I will shoot it. And Damien takes cover and Laura shoots the plane. Can't get in through the window because her... Uh, her boobies are too big. Her boobs are too big. Her boobies. You're what are you three? Her mammaries. Her dogs. Nature. Her dogs. Are you familiar with the word dogs? Never. No, I'm not. You're not familiar with the word dogs. No. See, I went. I I've gone on opposite spectrums of of boob lingo. (laughs) I've gone from. Boobies to dugs. Dugs is a very antiquated term, meaning typically the teats of an animal. But I mean, humans are animals, so. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Would you like more of an explanation? Ming Wo is and why angry. I'm familiar with this term because it involves me reading the histories of Livy and me looking in the commentary for what mamas means. They held up Damien. I mean, I knew what mamas meant, but I was curious what the commentary would say. And the uh, commentary said Doug's because it was written in the 1890s. Okay. Mingwo holds up Damien. Right. And, is, and Damien, in an attempt to escape, opens up the door to the plane. Mm-hmm. He gets sucked out, but his hand is intact. <laughs> yep. Lots of people will die. It goes into great detail to talk about the viscera and the death of all these people oh, in this as well. Oh, the best line in this whole book is uh, involves Damien's arm. Oh, gosh. What one is it? Oh, I'm trying to find the page. Did oh, I write the yeah. page in my notes? That is. A I question. think you did, and you actually even wrote the, the, the whole line. The quote. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm I'm going to it now. Uh Okay, so we have the shame spiral. Recognizing the wrists uh recognizing the watch and the wrists of as Damien's, she wrenches the fingers off the handle and flings the stump out of the plane. You forgot something, she calls. It's yeah. so screwed up. I freaking love it, man. It's great. It's ridiculous. So, yeah, Damien loses his his hand and flies out of the plane. Well, so Lots he loses both die. his hand and his life. And then Lara returns his hand. Yeah. A shootout ensues. Uh, and, you know, Laura's just like, I'm going to get you, Ming-Wo, you dirty guy. And he's like, hey, don't name call me, Laura Croft. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, but then all of a sudden, suddenly, the roof of the plane rips open. Mm-hmm. And Joni is hovering above them, transforming herself into the giant face of a dowager queen. Are you familiar with what a dowager queen is? That is a uh, a royal widow, isn't yes, it? Yes, that is exactly yeah. right. Did you also oh, have to Google this? A hundred percent, because I was like, <laughs> oh, what? Oh, what now? <laughs> I had to also... Uh, uh, Google the dynasty that she's a part of. She is the Dowager Queen of the Thong Dynasty, which is like yeah. uh, a Thai dynasty that I am less familiar with. So they now refer to her as Mrs. Thong. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so apparently Mingwo and Joni slash Mrs. Thong have been fighting for dominance of the two amulets since the beginning of time. Yep. Now, under various guises. Or at uh, least since the beginning of the, the Thong, Thong Dynasty. Dynasty. <laughs> so, the Dowager Queen 
slash Joni summons the hungry spirits of the avenging dead with knives and forks and chopsticks that begin to devour Ming Wo in an attempt to get the second amulet. He hands it to them. It is revealed to be a fake. And what does Laura do when she finds out it's a fake, Nick? Uh, she shoots the lock off of, I believe, was it like the... the... Oh, no. No, no, no. She shoots Ping, his son. Oh, right. She shoots the pseudo-Ping. Really, it's not really him. Yeah, it's fake Ping. It's Terry, the makeup assistant, in a rubber mask. Uh-huh. And so, like, the whole Scooby gang comes out, unmasks him. Yeah. And uh, then she shoots the lock off of the uh, well, overhead compartment. And then I the don't mean to interrupt again, out. Nick. Do you want to know why she knew that it was an imposter? Uh, it had to do with poop. Laura knew because Ping has Gladstone's condition, uh-huh, which, which means he could only poop. use his can only use his own personal bathroom. Mm-hmm. He would never leave his home estate unless through forceful means of being restrained. It has so she knew that wasn't the real Ping because he can't use any toilet seat other than the his own from his home estate. Mm-hmm. The real Ping is stored in a luggage compartment and tied up. Yep. You see, Ping had his appendix taken out and Ming Wo put inside By of him. our advertiser. So tread carefully, sir. Otherwise, we lose that quarter. I'm not going to be mad about the thing that's actually, you know, that happens. But you see, Ping and his appendix taken out. Uh-huh. And Ming Wo put inside of him the other amulet and connected it to a zapper that would shock him if he wasn't sitting down on a toilet seat that ha- that didn't have an unzapper attached to it, yep. in which would be in his home mansion. Yep. So he didn't really have Gladstone's disease. He just, like, would get a painful electric shock every time he tried to take a shit. Yes, inside of his where his appendix would be, which was also where this amulet of power was. So, so mind you, this thought is happening at the same time. This like godlike woman is floating above a plane that has been ripped apart, and there are just viscera and guts everywhere. And uh, then the lychee solar uh, vortex was it the 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 lychee solar shame spiral. Um. Yeah. And so she cuts him open, uh-huh. removes the amulet, uh-huh. and then destroys the amulet, saying, and I quote, nobody should have that much power. And the Dowager Queen's response is, yeah, you're probably right, lands the plane, and they all live happily ever after. Uh, what Do you recall what she said to, to Ping after cutting him open? Oh, what did she say? Uh, she uh, reminded him to put his liver back in love. Put your liver back in love. Yeah. And that's Mind you, the end, mostly. Gladstone's condition was never mentioned. It does have an afterword. It does. Where Laura is... It does. Where Laura Three is, years later, earlier. Earlier. Three years earlier. Laura's in a library. Uh-huh. Obligatory scene, apparently. Yes. The librarian is like, you're my best customer because you love books as if, you know, a library has customers. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's like, oh, somebody was looking at that book that you were looking at. uh, And they were also looking for underground mountain maps, Mm -hmm. like mountain tunnel maps in China. 
And Laura's like, let me see those maps. Because that was... Oh! How did the how did the Dowager Queen get her power? She was too powerful to not have the amulets and take that shape. Do you know how she had got her power, Nick? I don't recall now. She devoured Oh the right, she did arms. Yeah, 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 yeah. She devoured the nuclear arms. Yep, 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 yep. Yep. She ate Ming Wo's nuclear arsenal and that gave her the power to take the form of a giant I face. Mean, if I ate plutonium, I'm sure I would be more powerful than it certainly would not kill me. I am astounded. Was that a question from the chat, or did you, you did you just have a? Uh, I just had a, a moment. Sit. I had a moment. Okay, because that was like ridiculous. Like, how are you so powerful right now? And she's like, "Oh, I just devoured your nuclear arsenal to get myself a little energy boost." Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, so she goes to the library, and this is how she knew all the things that were relevant to the uh, the the plot of the main fanfic. And then we're done, and then we're done. What a stupid fanfic! This is a that's garbage. not at all what I took from it. I did I not loved use it. the word garbage for anything. I loved it. This so was much. also you did. Garbage. I'm pretty sure you called rogues not on the podcast. This is the, okay, if we're rating his fan fiction, I just bumped the microphone, it's a rogues hour out of ten. Probably, yeah. I still it's love it, rogues though. rogues hour out of ten. Nothing made any goddamn I sense. I think it's intentionally garbage. Why was Terry, why was Terry wearing a rubber mask posing as Ping? Who is Terry? Terry, <laughs> the, Terry was the makeup artist. No, 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 I know, but like previous to this moment, we had never been introduced to a Terry. I assume. They just kept shouting, Where's Terry? Yeah. Where's Terry? Terry! It was the dumbest thing ever. So. And. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Gladstone's condition, appendix. Great. Being taken out. All excellent. The, Wonderfully weird. The Zapper. The Dowager Queen. Mm hmm. I'm, the, a, I'm a big fan. Chopsticks? Chopsticks? Oh, right. You forgot I, to mention that they were throwing utensils uh, and that they were undead attempting to eat Ming Wo, and then they successfully ate him, if I recall? They successfully ate him. Correct. They were in mid-devour when he produced the amulet. And they're like, oh, never mind then. I guess we're fine. And then it was, turned out to be a fake, and so they just ate him. Yep, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you have any other thoughts about this, John? Uh, the only reason I ask I, is because I'm having a bit of a plumbing problem. A plumbing problem? Yeah, I'm having a bit of a plumbing, uh, plumbing problem. So do you have uh, any lingering thoughts? Oh, do you have a real-life plumbing problem? No. It's, uh, can you take a look at it, actually? Well, what is it? I don't know. I'm not into this bit. Oh! What is that in there? I, I It looks weirdly leather, John. Let me try to get it out. Let me reach in there, just elbows deep into your toilet here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Let me take a look. There, is oh, there anti, is oh there anti how zapper? are you breaking your... Oh, oh you got like weird rubber bones to get around the S-bend. That's disgusting. Oh, yeah. I got, man. You should see. I'm very limber. Yeah. And, uh... Oh, oh. Nick. Yeah? What? What are these? Those are the reins, John. Why, Nick? Mm-hmm. I never thought. I had no idea where you were going with this, <laughs> by the way. It took me a second. 
I so just so everyone knows, we literally never write that bit. It is just something that <laughs> that that portion of the podcast is just something that we always improv, and then the other person has to like try to sort out what is happening in that moment. I mean, I guess it makes sense. I was like, oh, because the next thing that we're going to be reviewing is, is Nintendo Adventure Books number one. Double Trouble. It makes Super Mario Brothers. sense why I would do what I did. <laughs> Super Mario Brothers book. It's a choose-your-own-adventure-style book written by Clyde Bosco. I'm Here's super excited thing. for it. Here's the thing, folks. If you know me, I'm a firm lover, a passionate lover, a caressing lover mm-hmm. of MMORPGs. I've talked before at great length. I just, one second, one second. That just sounds like such a non sequitur. <laughs> Why? Because we're, we're talking about Double Trouble, the Nintendo Adventure books featuring the Super Mario Brothers book. And you're like, Nibia. you know what I love? MMORPGs. <laughs> we're going to get there. I have talked at great lengths about a particular MMORPG called castle infinity it is a children's mmo it's a puzzle platformer where you have to save dinosaurs from imprisonment in an alternate dimension where they survived and were very technologically advanced and it also taught you esperanto the made-up language clyde bosco knows you love made-up languages clyde bosco is a pseudonym for a person by the name of Russell Gins, who is the man who designed and created Castle Infinity. And we didn't know this until like two days ago, and it blew my freaking mind. Yeah, it's really interesting. The author of the book. So often when we're trying to assess the quality of of a novel or any work we try to locate how, where the author's name is and how large it is and in this case yeah double trouble is by clyde bosco on the back in very tiny letters on the bottom right hand corner <laughs> and i was like who is clyde bosco and i i google him and it's like also see results about russell gins i'm like why would it do that and so i looked up and it's like it says he's a game designer what's what and so i look it up and he created he was the creator designer of castle infinity this thing that i rant about endlessly about like how wild and obscure this mmo is and so i am very excited to read this book and experience the delightful journey yeah and we we've already sort of looked at it. We haven't read it, and and there's some really yeah. interesting components to it. I don't know if you want to comment on that. Where it's yeah, it's different the, from like the Zork books that we've read and the other choose your own adventure novels that we've read. Choose your own adventure style the novels. Yeah, Nick, excuse please. me, I, I um, forgot the word style because TM CR BS. Um. So, uh, what determines how you progress? 
is based on actual physical puzzles and mazes that are in the book itself. So it's like, hey, you know, pick a uh, a path and follow that along, and it will lead you to the page that you need to go to, or you'll earn this item. And then later on, it'll reference, hey, which item do you have? And that determines how you're going to progress in the story. And so I feel like it's going to be what we want in a choose-your-own-adventure-style book, where it's a lot of tiny deviations that constantly reconverge just to tell a different story, but always keeping itself on track. Yeah. And I think it's going to be interesting. Yeah, it's something that I think you and I found frustrating, especially about the second Zurich book, the Malifest yeah, Quest. Yeah, Malifest Quest, yeah. Was the lack of variance. And the lack of, like, legitimate variance. Like, there technically yeah. were other pads, but those were all death. So we're yeah. hopeful that now that there's more of a random component... Um, or I, not exactly random, but well, no, there's, there, there's a situation where, uh, the decision that we have to make isn't based on any logic. Yes. It's just, Hey, pick a path and that will tell you what page to go. And it's not going to doom you, yeah. but it's going to give you a different experience, even if it's a small deviation. Yeah. I will maintain and, though, that in the Zork quests, there is not much logic in <laughs> You can well, try. You I mean, can try to outthink it, but it, it is at best a, lot of the, a, a flip lot of, of a coin. A lot of the decisions are like, "Hey, do you remember this clue we gave you so many pages back?" Yeah, but, it, in Malifest Request, that's true. But I, I, I think that in both overall, most of them are either very prima facie, obviously that's the right decision, or it's a coin flip. Yeah, yeah. We're well, hoping like, that that's not the case with this one. Well, Nick, yeah, I think that was a pretty good podcast. I, I mean, I coughed a lot. That's a good thing. I yeah, think a I, I think that's. I've never coughed in a podcast before. I hope everyone enjoyed. Sakura enjoyed it. I'm glad. Uh, we won't do this very often, but I thought because of this being such a major visual emphasis in this book mm-hmm. that we had to at least do something uh, as a more visual aspect of it. There will be an audio version. I will upload this onto YouTube. Please well. also listen to that, even if it's just with it off. Like, oh, yeah. Muted. Yeah, just AFK listen just for the listens. I know. Please. Oh, the whopping you know, four viewers, five viewers of this one in particular. Please is, uh, review us. That's, you know, uh, half of our listener base. Give us five stars and glowing commentary on Apple Podcasts. Nick wants you to worship him like everyone worships Laura Croft right now in this day and age. Indeed. Laura Croft is still very, very in the zeitgeist. Very Uh, In fact, presently, she is the president of... The president? The president of the United States of America. And there was silence. (laughs) (laughs) Good night, everybody!